Good evening, everyone. I'm Joe Abadi, and welcome to a special episode of Vintage Motocross Q&A, where tonight, my guest is legendary Brad Lackey. 1972 500cc national champion, 1982 500cc world champion. His quest went from Berkeley to Belgium in search of his quest, and he did it. Brad, thank you for being here with me tonight. Yeah, Joe, no problem. Well, where do we begin? I guess back, back when uh, you were probably 14 years old, you began riding dirt bikes out uh, here in Northern California. What was your first bike? Well, it was a little bit earlier than that. Uh, my first race was when I was 14, but we started riding a little step-through Honda that my dad got for me and my brother. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that had to be more like nine years old, I guess. You know, you don't know. Now, those memories are a long time ago. And you, you don't remember how old you, you were when you got old first mini bike type bike, you know. But, uh, um, you know, we grew up here in Northern California and ra raced out or rode out in the hills in uh, Richmond where my dad would go with his buddies and cow trail as they call it mm -hmm. and they would go off riding on the big hills and my brother and I were too little and we had a little bike so we just rode around on the flat grounds and waited for them to come back for a beer break and then we would you know hang out with them for a while and they'd tell us the stories of who made it up the hill and all that so sure. and, you know after a while of doing that we wanted a bigger bike and things lead to the next thing and yeah I, I saw a picture uh, here of a uh, look like it was from 1967 it was a Hodaka was that one of the first bikes you raced? And yeah, that was my first bike that I, I rode in a race. And soon after that, I got uh, a sponsorship at a local shop uh, on a Bultaka 200. Mm -hmm. And, you know, motocross hadn't really started yet. So we were riding scrambles and short tracks. It was, you know, just in the beginning of when motocross just got over here. And uh, so we rode, uh, like I said, short track on my Bultaka. And then... Uh, motocross got introduced and we had the option to go to the short track race or the scrambles race or the motocross and we chose the motocross because at that time there was three motos and then the scrambles race you had a heat race and if mm -hmm. you didn't qualify or you had a problem then you were done and motocross you got to ride three times no matter what you know so sure. man that was a no-brainer so we started riding motocross just for that reason so let's fast forward a little bit now you get on a cz and you're doing really well locally how long were you on the CZ before you got a professional license? Um, I had the CZ ride in 1970 because before that I, I rode for Montessa mm -hmm. and American Eagle before that. And I don't know if anybody even knows what that is that's listening to this, yeah. but uh, they were a good bike. They won a, we won a lot of races on that. And uh, then I got the CZ ride from Mr. Leitner here in Concord, Northern California. And actually, I, we left town to go ride the Interam and drove out to Wisconsin for the first race and then uh, went to the second race and kind of got screwed by the promoter. We paid all our entries for 10 races, and when we got to the second track, he was not happy that we were riding CZs because they were communist motorcycles. Ah. We weren't, uh, we were in Ohio and, uh, you know how things are there sometimes. Well, back then, especially, oh, sure. Oh, yeah. It was the same weekend as Kent State, as a matter of fact. Wow. So so um, you got long hair in the CZ. Yeah. Didn't go over didn't big go. in Ohio. So uh, so we had to uh, had to go find some other way to get money and go home. So we found out that AMA was starting a series in Ohio that mm -hmm. weekend. So we went down and bought a, or got an AMA license. 
uh, by hook or crook, kind of, because I really wasn't quite old enough at the time because he had to be 18, I was 17 or something. And uh, we rode the first AMA race in Ohio, which was the first AMA motocross, professional motocross they had. And uh, from that time on, the next race, I went from Ohio to Unadilla. Mm -hmm. And I did really well in that race. I was winning the race for 20 minutes, beating all the Europeans, and my bike had some problems, some issues, and I, didn't, I ended up not winning. But the CZ factory guys were there from New York, and they saw me, and that's when they offered me uh, a ride to go to Europe and ride yeah. the 250 Grand Prix. That kind of uh, leads to my next question about how long were you on CZ in America before you caught the factory's eye and they made you go over there? A very short period of time, short really. Of time. Yeah. So you agreed to go to Czechoslovakia, East Bloc, communist country. You're probably not really aware of any of that going on at the time. And they give you a job at CZ. Are you there testing bikes? Are you in the factory? What exactly are you doing? Where do you live? Um, they tried to put me in some factory housing, which is a room about the size of a small bathroom over here, mm -hmm. and with three other worker guys, which were all you know forty, but I thought they were eighty because <laughs> I was sixteen, you know, seventeen, and uh, at the, I didn't, I couldn't stay there, so I went and checked into a hotel in town. And that didn't work because it cost too much money and the factory didn't like that. So one of the youngest mechanics at the factory in the motocross department, he had some parents that had a summer cabin, little tiny shack out in the woods. He talked them into letting me stay there. So mm -hmm. I had my own little place in the woods, no electricity, no running water, but I was by myself and I could do what I wanted. So in the morning, I'd get up and ride my CZ into town and uh, go to the factory in the morning and walk with the worker bees down the road and mm -hmm. stop and they'd get a beer for breakfast with a pickle. That was what they had morning, their morning get ready to go to work stuff was a nice big pilsner and a pickle. So I'm drinking beer and eating pickles at, you know, 17 years old and working in the factory on the days that I didn't do testing or riding, practicing, or left town on the weekends for a Grand Prix because mm -hmm. it was, I was riding six 250 Grand Prix at that time in 1971. Were they paying you? Yeah, they gave me money. You know, it's like Monopoly stuff. You have no idea what a, what it was or how much it's worth. And, you know, I found out kind of quickly the first week that I met some young people from town and I bought everybody steaks and beers. And when I rent, and I used up all the money they gave me and I went back and asked for some more. And they said, are you crazy? That's a month's salary. I went, well, I need more because it made one dinner. <laughs> that's the way life is in America, maybe. Yeah. But not in Strachanese. Yeah, that's right. Now, I... You told me a funny story one time, Brad, and, and I wanted to bring it up here. When bolts would come loose on a CZ, how would they, what was their form of Loctite there? Well, they wouldn't come loose because they Loctited them all with a hammer prior to the race, you know. If you wreck the threads, it can't come off. So that's um, what they'd do. Yeah, and because, you know, it's a factory. They got many more bolts, and if your nut comes off and your bike falls apart, you're screwed. But you go back and you cut it off and put a new bolt on if you need to, but they don't lose any nuts, you know. Let's fast forward a little bit. You come back from Czechoslovakia. You're riding a CZ here yet. There's a Trans Am series going on. Uh, you finished really, really well that year. You were top American. How did you transition from CZ to Kawasaki? Because if you look at some old magazines or on the internet, you'll see some pictures of you riding a Kawasaki with a CZ jersey. How did that transition take place? Well, you know, back then the factories weren't like they are now you know, so uptight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was riding for CZ and getting parts and bikes and getting some money. And I started testing for Kawasaki because they had this new prototype 500, mm -hmm. 490 actually. And so I was test 
doing testing R and D for Kawasaki, and then when the 500 got ready for uh, for the uh, races, the nationals and stuff, um, I rode the 500 in that class, and I rode the two because you could ride both classes at that time. Ah, too. okay. I mean, you know, everything's different. Sure. You know, so it, you can't understand it today, but back right. then, so I rode the CZ in the 250 class. And I rode the Kawasaki and the other class. Because Kawasaki, I would have rode for them solely, but they had no, no 250. They didn't have one. They didn't make one. There wasn't anything built yet. You did help develop that bike, the, the 250. Oh, uh, no, not... Oh, I'm sorry, the open bike. Yeah, the open bike. And what... I, I, I thought I read somewhere one time where what they did, I don't know if this is common knowledge or not, but they uh, they actually had a lineup of competitors' bikes. Oh, yeah. They, they went out and bought a brand new motocross bike from every manufacturer. So they had a whole stable full of them and and you know the test guys would ride them and report back okay this one suspension's the best on this bike the steering's the best on this bike power mm -hmm. bands the best on this bike and that's how they that's how you develop a, a new bike that you know when there was nothing to start with that's how they did it mm -hmm. and i actually borrowed one of those bikes for a race that i couldn't take my factory bike to and was a Mako 400 or something, I won the race on it, and that was all perfectly fine, you know? Yeah, I guess it was. Now, we do have some members of the group, Vintage Motocross Q&A, and I invited them to ask some questions. So, throughout this interview, I'm going to throw some questions out to you that come in from the people. The first one's from Rick Devine. Tell me more about the Husky tank on the Black Cow. Why was it on there? And did Husky or Cowie put up a stink when they saw that Husky tank on the bike? Uh, maybe everybody doesn't know what the Black Cow is. So okay. I'll give them that, right? Yeah. Uh, after I won the national championship in the States on the Kawasaki, mm -hmm. I had in my contract that I could stay here and ride the nationals or go to Europe and ride the Grand Prix. And, uh, after I won the national championship here on Kawasaki in 72, they kind of forgot about that little clause in there. And then I said, okay, well, I'm not staying here. I'm going to ride the GP. So you have to give me bikes and everything. And they went, whoa, 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 no, that's we need you to stay here with the number one plate and sell some bikes. And I went, Sorry, guys, you signed the contract, and I want to ride Grand Prix. So we went over with one bike, no support, me and Steve Johnson, and uh, the tank, the factory tank, which the factory tank was just a, a British aluminum tank that they were using at the time, mm -hmm. and it broke, so we had to put another tank on. So we put aluminum Husky tank on because it was light and it worked. And uh, we had no green paint, so we had to paint it black. And we didn't have any stickers that said Kawasaki, so we painted Cow, K-A-W, on it. And then, you know, you got to remember the time frame here. By the time the pictures got back to America, that takes a month on the boat. Right. And, you know, so sometime later, you know, they the factory sees all this, and then they put a bunch of green paint in the can and ship it over there. And anyway, it's too late. So anyway, the Black Cow is kind of a famous bike because of all those stories. And uh, I rode the whole GP circuit in seventy. Three on that bike, and uh, you know, I had a a lot of learning experience, and you know, I finished thirteenth, I think, in the world championship. So, but you were there. That was the beginning of it. Yeah, going back like twelve years ago, and this is a good Kawasaki story, and it's kind of a little off track from the motorcycle thing, but no, it's not. You and Jimmy Wire were at my house in Paramus, New Jersey, and we were of course sitting around talking about racing. What I didn't know was that both of you were part, you were instrumental actually in the development of the Kawasaki jet ski. Where did that take place, and what did two motocross guys tell the factory about a personal watercraft? Yeah, that was um, poss possibly in the 72-3, or just 73, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kawasaki was in Santa Ana. We had, in our contracts, we had to live within five miles of the factory, so anytime they needed us for anything, we were close by instead of me living in San Francisco. 
and Jimmy in New York. So uh, they had this new jet ski, you know, this was before anybody had a yep. wave run or anything. Kawasaki was the first company to come up with that. And so Carl's, Lake Carlsbad was just down the road from there, and we'd, go, we'd take him down there and just beat him to death. That was our job. And see, you know, and feedback, you know, how, the, how does it, you make it turn better, how, you know, everything, you know, you fall off of it, how long will it go before it stops and idles and turns around, you know, can you swim that far to get it, you know, uh, I mean, you got to remember this stuff's brand new and yeah. they didn't know how to make it all work and Jammer, you know, he's taking it over the ski jumps, you know, and jumping the thing and just, you know, out of control with them. So we just beat him to death and gave him our reports and after that, jet skis were the deal. And they're still around today. Yeah. Got a comment or a question from Chris Veenbass. Chris says, you began using Fox Air Shocks on your Husky. Were they good right out of the box? How much development did it take to make you happy with them? Was Husky okay with you running those shocks? Uh, you know, like anything, when you got a brand new product like that, you know, that was revolutionary. You know, everything else looked like that girling right there. And, and air without a spring was, you know harsh you know you had to figure out how to make it soft and mm -hmm. you know it was probably at least a year of development with that and um you know we got them dialed in where they worked as well as anything else but the strength of the shaft size and when you're hitting big jumps and landing that was the key right there you could jump farther you can land harder and it sucked it up without breaking a frame or a wheel and that you know back then everybody broke down every other race just about you know so it was huge and um husky yeah, you know, they're, they're Swedes and they're serious about racing. And I had the misfortune of racing at the same time as the world champion on the Husky, Heike Mikula. Sure. And so whatever Heike used had to be good enough for me and everybody else on the teams. And uh, they couldn't understand that I had a different riding style than him and that these were better for me and, and those were better for him. So, you know, we had a few run-ins, but nothing that ever became a big, serious deal. And, and my shocks never failed. I never broke down. So I think uh, we did the right move. So Hucky was not that accommodating when you would tell them what you wanted or they would say, well, Hucky's winning races. Yeah, of course they would say that. And they were right. You know? <laughs> so I had no argument. Yeah. But they were better than Honda. You know? <laughs> yeah, I got it. Tony Devino, you and Heike Mikula were on Husky at the same time. Were you on similar bikes in the setup? How close were they to production bikes? They were very close to production bikes, you know. Husky had some cylinders and, you know, frames were stock, swing mm -hmm. arms were stock. Heike, you know, probably had some factory shocks, some girlings, and maybe some work on the forks, you know, but they were almost stock, you know, back at that time. And our bikes were the same. I mean, when they gave me my bike, it was the same. I modified it with the uh, Fox shocks, and um, actually Simons at that point was working on some fork extenders and stuff, so we'd get another inch or two in the front, so I had those too. So I had, my bike was set up totally different than Heike's, but basically same motor, same frames, same wheels, same swing arms, everything the same, until my chain started falling off at every race. Right. And I had to explain to the engineers that the swing arm was flexing, because you know that Husky little swing arm, just a little tiny thing. It wasn't beefy or nothing like that. You sure. know? And uh, so I decided uh, I, I, I'm losing every point every week because my chain falls off. And they go, well, Heike's chain doesn't fall off. I go, I understand that. I, I'm watching them win every weekend. And they say, well, your mechanic must be doing adjusting it wrong. And I said, okay, have Heike's mechanic adjust mine. 
he adjusted it. I said, where do you want the chain to fall off? <laughs> I go over a jump and get a little twist to it and chain falls off. And then they're scratching their heads. And then I go, swing arms flexing. No, Heike's doesn't fall off. It can't be that. I go, well, probably that. So anyway, I ended up building a swing arm like this, aluminum one. And the last four races of the Trans Am series, my chain never fell off until my swing arm broke. But of course, that was a quick fix and I knew it wasn't something that we were going to be proud of but sure. It, sure four races I didn't have a DNF well sometimes you got to take matters into your own hands yeah I mean there's engineers and there's smart people yeah but they're not on the bike and you know to be a good rider you got to change stuff by yourself sometimes yeah you raced GPs for 10 years 72 to 82 when you look in the history books do you see some amazing names around your name Roger DeCoster, Heike Mikola, Garrett Walsing, so many wonderful, wonderful riders. Jay Hall would like to know, who do you feel was your greatest rival? Well, you know, I rode with all those guys, you know, when I wasn't up at the winning time, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I raced with everybody in the top 500 guys that were ever there. You know, even Friedrichs, I rode a race with him and Checo in, in 71 in the 500 GP. And then Roger and Heike and Walsink and... You had a lot of rivals, really. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, every one of those guys. But I wasn't at the top, you know. Mm -hmm. I was back and forth, fifth, and those guys were dialing it in, and I was trying to learn a little bit still. But when I was winning races and fighting for the world championship, it was Andre Mallard and me. We we duked it out hard a lot of times, so mm -hmm. that was the hardest time with him. Andre Mallard. Yeah. Well, Rick Conley would like to know, why did you leave Honda for Kawasaki? You were doing so well on Honda couple reasons actually honda like i said they were worse than husky as far as making changes and making the bike fit me and you know nowadays it's a whole different story but back then the factories had two ideas the idea was you build a bike all the riders ride it it's just the same i mean you tell somebody that nowadays they just laugh you out of the building you know yeah tell you know the suzuki guy then that suzuki guy on the team and they're you got to ride the same bike. That guy's six foot two, and the other guy's five eight. Right, they're not riding the same bike, you know. But back then, that's how they did it. And you know, we we'd come up with all kinds of neat things that would improve our lap times, and you know, you could show them. And I guess went three seconds faster with this Preston Petty anti dive and blah blah blah. Nope, we didn't design it. Take it off, you know, and you're just getting stifled. You know, you, yeah, you're not making progress. That was number one reason. Number two reason, I already rode for Kawasaki prior, and um, they let me do all the development. Anything I had an idea, I got to try it, test it, and if it worked, I got to keep it. So I assumed that would be the same, which it was, and they kind of lied to me a little bit about how far along the unit track was in the in development stages. I was told it was pretty far along and ready to go, which it really wasn't, because that year when I switched from Honda to Kawasaki, I won the most GPs, but I broke down the most too, and I would have won the world championship pretty easily that year if it wasn't for a DNF. So I got kind of snookered on that plan and maybe lost the championship that year, but you know, that's how it works. You did win the world championship for Suzuki, but is there another manufacturer you would have preferred to win for? Like maybe Kawasaki because they were so loyal to you and helped you in the beginning? Yeah, when I got second in 80 at the last race and kind of got screwed on that one, um, yeah, I would have really loved to give Kawasaki a championship. They never won one, and it would have been their first one. Mm -hmm. Suzuki already won lots of championships in the 125 and 250 class, right. and with Roger and everybody. So Kawasaki would have been a big move for them. And Honda hadn't started dominating yet, so I really wanted to win that one for Kawasaki.
Lee McCallum, who's actually a factory Suzuki mechanic today, had a question for you regarding the Simons forks. Were the Simons upside down forks developed by you or given to you from Steve Simons at what they felt was fully developed? Were there many changes for the offsets for the triple clamps? Just how far did you have to take them after you first tried them? Steve designed and built them. I had already been working with them, like I said, in the past on forks mm -hmm. for Husky and, and extra travel and different things. And uh, when he came up with, to me with them, uh, you know, same thing like everybody. What is that all about? Anyway, so we started testing them. And, you know, it was probably more than a year, you know, because I rode the Golden State series in 81 and tested them then. And then I used, I, you know, that whole year. Um, so you had those forks on your Golden State series bike here in the States, yeah. the upside down fork. Yeah. So I ran, I ran the whole series and won that series with them. And I knew reliability was there, and we, at the whole time, we were changing things and getting them dialed in and getting them perfect for, you know, each track. If it's this type of track, you have those settings, and Steve has, you know, meticulous notes, so he knew if we got to a Grand Prix and it was this kind of track, he already looked in his book and go, oh yeah, that's them. So it was pretty simple once we got to Europe, but uh, when we showed up with them, yeah, it was a bit of a... A little bit of problem for Suzuki because once again, like Honda, we didn't develop that. We didn't make it. We don't know if it's going to work. And mm -hmm. I have to tell them, you know, I know it's going to work because I've already done all the testing. Yeah. But they, you know, they don't understand that uh, they can't trust me. They got to trust their guys. You know, right. you know how it works. I do. I but do. they're paying me to win. So I have to do what it takes to get paid and win. Do you think single-handedly the upside-down forks were the biggest development mechanically oh, in your career? They were, that... they were the biggest development in how many years, well, you know, yeah. in the whole industry. But on, on, on one of your bikes, would you say that was the thing that when you put it on, you knew it was going to be different the next week? Yeah. No, I think that was, you know, that first, Fox Shock second. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a little, bit, a little bit close. But the forks more because they did, they did a lot of things better than... Conventional forks, and they um, they just were indestructible and uh, revolutionized everything. And you know, every manufacturer copied them. Yeah. Uh, you know, within a few years. So what's that tell you? And they're still out there today. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. John Kleinman, excellent question. I couldn't wait to pose this to you. You were instrumental in getting Jim Pomeroy to go to Europe. When did you meet Jim, and how did you get him to go over there? I got a phone call from some guys up in Washington that wanted to pay me to come up and race a race in Puyallup, Washington. Mm -hmm. And I've never heard of Jim Pomeroy or Puyallup, Washington or any of that because it was like 70 or 71. And uh, I said, well, it's a long way. We'll give you 400 bucks and gas and hotel. And at that time, that was big money. So I said, sure. So I go up there and I get to the track. It's a sandy track. It's really nice. And uh, little did I know, they had Pomeroy there that he won every race of that track since he was born. So he's a ringer. So he's the ringer. <laughs> and they want to compare Pomeroy to me because I've been winning all the races down here in California. And they were trying to judge where Bimbo sat in the overall picture of things. And anyway, I ended up beating them. And they couldn't believe it because they figured he was the fastest guy. You know, but that's local track sure. mentality. And that's what it is. And... Uh, you know, he was good, but, you know, I could I could win the race. And so after the race, I went and talked to him. I said, Jim, you, you know, you need to, you're really talented and you're really fast, but you just stay right here. You're not going to get no better. you got to come to California, ride some hard pack, ride some different tracks and all that. So I got him down here, and he's doing really good, and he's learning, and he's getting better. 
So then I talk him into going to Europe because I figured, well, I need a buddy over there, right? Yeah, sure. So I talk him into going over there, and you know, we were separated because he did 250 and I did 500. So, but we stayed kind of in the same town, and we got to go hang out together a lot and play and practice and stuff. And so when Jimmy won that first moto in Spain, that was like unbelievable. No, he could believe it, let alone me. You know? <laughs> and uh, let me ask you this, Brad, because we're talking about Jim Parmore. <coughs> we've mentioned some other names, Heike Mikula, Rob DeCoster, of course. Who, in your opinion, it could be 250 or 500, who, in your opinion, was the greatest rider never to win a world championship? Well, you know, there's a lot of guys that got second, mm -hmm. myself included, two times. Mm -hmm. So... It's a, it, it depends on a lot of things. Well, not a lot. It depends on basically three things. Are you riding in a year where you got Joe O'Bear the same year? <laughs> You're not winning. And that's not your fault. It's just you got Robert, you know? Did you get hurt? And you couldn't win. You were winning and you broke a leg or you got hurt and you didn't get to finish out in the points and mm -hmm. you lost because of that. Um, so there's a few things and just having overall bad luck can kill you too, you know, but, um, after watching a lot of GPs and a lot of riders, I didn't get to see all, I, you know, 250 guys just a little bit that one season, but I was in the 500 class my whole life and there's a lot of guys that, uh, were good, but I don't really think that they should have won and mm -hmm. got really the bone of Rama on that one. I think Sylvain Gabors is probably the number one guy, you know, he was very talented Everybody saw him over here in the Trans Ams. Sure. He killed everybody over here. And I watched him in the 250 GPs lead the whole GP. And then Joel would pass him on the last lap and turn around and laugh at him. You know, yeah. bad timing. You sure. Know? That's all it is. Yeah. He would have been three or four time world champ if Joel wasn't right. Yeah. And, and you know what? It's been 37 years since your championship. And even till this day, I can, I can look through certain things, of course, on the internet. And there's always this, uh, well, there's misinformation is what there is. You won on August 8th, 1982. Danny Laporte won two weeks later? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, he was at my race cheering me on, mm -hmm. champagne after the race. So, yeah, yeah. the 250s just finished two weeks later than the 500s. And there have been other great champions, world champions from America oh, on, yeah. on smaller bikes. Yeah. But you were the first on the 500 in 1982. Okay, let's go back to Luxembourg, August 8th, 1982. You're a moto away. From winning your world championship, a 10-year quest. You told me that, well, you even said it right here, Suzuki wasn't real happy with you because of the Simon's Forks, a boost bottle, and other things that you just had to do in order to remain competitive. Right. They wanted Andre Romans to win. What is the feeling in the pit during that time between those races? Are you parked near Romans? Is anybody speaking to you? What does it feel like? You're one moto away, and your team, except, of course, for your immediate team, your mechanic, your wife, Lori, of course, what is it like throughout the rest of the area? Well, it's not like today. The team, we were both Suzuki, but we didn't pit together. Mm -hmm. Not like, you know, now. Right. There's no big giant semi. We have little trucks and little tents. and mm -hmm. So we're separate because we were separate. That's kind of how it works over there. Not because there was a problem with us. Anyway, so Vromans, he was... Very, as far as all the riders that I had a lot of duels with for the world championship mm -hmm. and down to the wire, he was straight up and rode right, you know, no bullshit. Mm -hmm. That's the way to do it. Like, yeah. That's how I do it. And um, the tension was obviously uh, pretty high. 
And I already knew that uh, the Japanese prefer him to win because he was on a factory stock bike <laughs> and I was on a factory non-stock bike. And we had our difficulties about that. But I told them at one point that uh, they wanted me to not race in 82. They kind of were trying to not fire me. They couldn't fire me from my contract, but they wanted me to stay home and they were going to hire somebody else. And I said, why would you do that? You have to pay me my money. And they go, oh, yeah, but then we don't have to pay a mechanic and a truck and this and that and a couple more bikes. That's $500,000 or something in their budget. I said, well, okay, if that's what you want. I pissed you off that bad with some forks and a couple things so I could win for you, you know. Um, so I kind of bluffed them and said, no, I got another deal from Kawasaki, you know. I rode for them twice already, and they love me, and uh, I'm going to get paid the same money, and I'm going to beat whoever you hire. And that would make you look pretty dumb because you're paying me, and Kawasaki's paying me, mm -hmm. and then the guy you hire, I beat him. You might as well just go get the knife right now, you know. <laughs> so anyway, that scared them. So they said, okay, back to normal. We'll give you bikes and all this. So anyway, that's a long story. Everybody's heard that one, I think, a lot of times. But um, in the end, it was a lot of pressure because... I had to win the world championship. I had to beat Roman. So he happened to be the other guy on the team. And uh, Suzuki preferred him to win. So, you know, but they were people of their word. They gave me the right, same equipment as him. They gave me every opportunity. So they didn't screw me, you know, right. which that's right. You know, you do it, let it, the guys go race and see what happens. Right. I, I didn't get hindered by them not giving me parts or something to give him some advantage. So that was good. I was very pleased with that they kept to their word and did what they said. So Suzuki, you guys were very honorable that way. And in the end, the only thing we got for Suzuki was first and second in the World Championship, the Manufacturers World Championship, the first time that Honda or Suzuki, I mean, Honda hasn't won it in five or six years, and Suzuki gets to go Go like this. They came in the first year. This is the second year. It's 81 and 82. Mm -hmm. They hadn't been in that class since Roger in 75 or 6. So they ha didn't even have a bike for four or five years. And within two years, they won the world championship in the manufacturers. So I think no matter how bad I did for them. Still not that bad. I think it's not that bad. You know what? While we're on the subject of that time period and what you did, this is the bike you won the world championship on. Did you take this bike? Right then and there, after you won, or how did you wind up getting this bike in your possession? No, Stick, my mechanic, he loaded it up in the factory truck. We had a, we have a, a Japan contract, but mm -hmm. Belgium has the warehouse facilities and the race team for Europe. Mm -hmm. And Sylvain Gabor's ran that and has until recently. Anyway, so it went back to the factory. And then um, they told Japan told Sylvain to send crush all the bikes right. destroy them like they do over there and before that happened Harry Everts he was riding the world championship but still at that time mm -hmm. uh, and he was still riding the Belgium championship and he wanted to win the Belgium championship so he said give me Lackey's bike because it was the weird one it had forks that were wrong and and it had a complete different sound than because we had special pipes and cylinders and all kinds of stuff and so he took it from there, and then he rode the Belgium Championship on it. And then when he was done with that, he just threw it on the side of his shed in his backyard, and it sat there for a year or two, or I don't know how many years, actually. Then he sold it to a guy in Holland that's a collector kind of guy. 
he has Gaston Rayer's BMW Perry Dakar winning bike in his showroom window. <laughs> so he's a real enthusiast. So anyway, he bought it and he had it. And then when I went to Europe in 2000 for the Motocross of Nations, I was texting uh, or phone, phoning to Sylvain and going, how about my bike? You know anything about it? Is there any parts or just anything around? Yeah, I'll look into it. So then we got there. I said, Sylvain, did you find out anything about the bike? Just the frame or swing arm or motor or anything? Yeah, I know this guy in Holland. He might have something. <laughs> but he knew all along he that sure? he had the whole bike. And so we go up there and, you know, I've been looking for 20 years now for the bike. And so we go up there and we walk in the back room and there it is sitting there. And the, and the mechanic from the third rider, it was Romans, me and Jean-Jacques Bruno from France. So mm -hmm. there were three riders that year. And his mechanic was working at that shop as a mechanic. And he goes, Brady, did you see your bike? I go, what are you talking about? He goes, no, your bike, it's right here. So I go around the corner and there it is sitting there. And he, I go, well, why do you think that's my bike? Ah, four speed. I was the only four-speed. Everybody's had five-speeds. Yeah. So it had to be my bike. It was mm -hmm. just no way. So anyway, um, started it up and checked it out. Then we made some some real negotiation with uh, with a Dutch guy, which was a little rough. I bet it was. Sylvain, <laughs> so no, he, he put it together. He he did really good for me. And then we shipped it home. And, I, uh, and then I got a call from Sylvain's brother a few months later. He goes, Brad, do you want your forks? I go, what do you mean my forks? He goes, yeah, I have your Simon's forks because hmm. it had regular factory forks on it when right. I got it. And I go, well, why do you think they're mine? He goes, because I took them off the day after the race and they've been in my basement ever since. <laughs> and it's Sylvain's brother, so, you know, that's true. Sure. So I had Simon's check the little number here in the thing and he looked in his book. He goes, yep, that's the ones from Luxembourg. Wow. So we got the right forks and I had seat making this seat. And other than that, and there it is. It's got some miles on it from... If I'm Harry riding it, and you know, it's not all pristine like it would have been coming off the GP, but still, it's the right one. It's everything there. I'm no, very happy. I bet you are. I bet you are. So, you win the world championship in 1982. Your price to ride for 1983 was a million dollars. You weren't going to ride for anybody for less than a million. Well, there's some reason for that. I, I'm, I'm sure, well, you could get into that if you like. Yeah, uh, because, you know, it sounds like I'm just saying I'm worth a million dollars. That wasn't it. I, it was again a down in the economy, just mm -hmm. like it was 10 years ago mm -hmm. or so. And all the factories were bailing out. Suzuki didn't even really have a team. They had Romans on a bike from the distributor. Yamaha had Carl Quist out of Amsterdam, Yamaha distributor. Kawasaki had Thorpe out of England distributor. Nobody was spending no money because nobody had no money. Nobody was buying bikes. So it was, you know, money was shit. So nobody was paying anybody. And Honda mm -hmm. had the full team, which, they already, I already been there and I wasn't going to get to go back there. Right. So there was no options on any of the factory bikes, you know, for me to get a ride. So I just went, all right, I'll tell you what. I talked with Lori and we discussed it and I said, all right, I'll, I'll ride if I get a million dollars because one, I don't want to ride because I won't get a good bike and I won't win. So and then I win the world championship and I'm like every other SMO, you go back out there two or three right. years and you fade into nothing and you, that's it. That's I didn't want to go out that way. So um, she said, nobody's going to pay you that. I go, that's right. That's the point. Why would they? They're not going to. But Kajiva yeah. offered you $750,000. Yeah, I, I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> You you turned it down because you wanted to be a I man? Of I, <laughs> I turned it down because I came home and I told Lori, I go, hey, I got an offer today. And she goes, yeah, what was that? <laughs> and I go, 
Now she said, from who, I think was her first question. I said, Kijiva. And at that time, they didn't have a lot going on in motocross anyway. So she looked at me and I said, $750,000, which was, I guarantee, a triple what anybody else was getting paid. I'm sure. And uh, she thought for a minute, looked at me, and she goes, that's not a million. <laughs> I go, you're right. So and that, that, was, was, that was it. I left seven fifty on the table plus all the content. You know, so I left a million out there. But, you know, after that time, most of the guys were number one on their bike or in wheelchairs right now. Yeah. You know, it could have been a little lucky intervention or something. But sure. I'm very happy leaving that money there because that money would be gone right now. And I'm still walking and talking and I can't dance like you, Joe, but well, I, you know, I can't ride like you. I was never able to do that. <laughs> anyway, Yamaha comes sniffing around in 1983. They want you to ride the USGP here in Southern California. You're working on a deal with them. It's going back and forth. ATK's got a bike. Yamaha's got a bike. They know you want a million bucks. It's a week before the race. Who's your mechanic? What's the bike like? What's happening down there at the USGP? Well, we were down there way before a week before the race, okay. and I was testing for Horse Lightner on the ATK because I wanted to ride it because it worked fairly good, and we had good lap times. And then Yamaha came and they gave me a bike, you know, that had some modifications. I wasn't a factory bike by any means, and you know, lap times were about the same. And uh, the problem was. Because I've read these stories all the time. Everybody hears bad stories about how I screwed somebody and all this stuff. But horse, his frame was too low. And Carlsbad, you know how they water it muddy and you go with jumps and you land in the mud and stick. And then you're, you know, you're losing time if you're not going over the handlebars. So I said, horse, frame's too low. I'm already dragging it when it's not bad. But I know how this track's going to be. So you got to get the motor off the ground. So I mean, you got to go up two inches or something. Mm -hmm. I can't do that. I can't afford to do that. I can't do it. And I said, well, if you can't do that, I can't ride it because it's just going to make you look bad and I'm not going to do very well. It's going to make me look bad. If you can do it, do it. And I'll ride it. And he couldn't do it. He didn't have the money or whatever. So that's the reason I didn't ride that bike. Nothing to do with I screwed somebody or bailed out at the last minute. Okay. It, was, it was a real mechanical issue. So Yamaha was there with that bike and I've been testing on it. So I just said, sure. So, you know, they came up with an uh, amount of money for me to ride it. They got Yamaha with the number one plate. The only year that I had a number one, the only race I ran with the number one. Mm -hmm. That was the only race I rode that year. And I wanted to do that just so I had some pictures with number one on the bike. You know, sure. That's something you want. So they paid you for one day? Yeah. What did they pay you? I was the highest paid Yamaha rider for one day. Let's just go with that. Really? Well, okay. Because if you add 365 times to the money I got, I'm the highest paid rider. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I like that arithmetic. You know, Brad, throughout your career, you were hurt once with your ankle. You broke an ankle one year. And, uh, but there was another time, and not a lot of people know this, and, I, and it's the most frightening thing, I believe, for any motocross rider or for anyone. You were at a race, at a GP, and you were hit from behind. You were partially paralyzed. What happened that day? How did that... It was 78, and Heike and I were going for the world championships last race he you know with him finishing both motors i, I would have got second he would have won no matter what he would maybe had to not finish a moto or two motors and me win and then i could have won the championship so you know it's mathematical but not reality so mm -hmm. anyway we get off the line and we're next to each other and we got a handlebars tangled and it's mud mud race you know 
in Luxembourg, where I won the championship. Mm -hmm. It's where I won my first GP also, and it's also where I lost a world championship uh, one time or two times. Cali? Yeah. Yeah, one time. Anyway, so um, handlebars are tangled, and by, you know, we're trying to, you know, you're wide open and going, but we're hooked, kind of hooked together, and I'm fighting to get away, and it gets away, it just turns that way, and I go sideways, and we're in the front of the pack, and I go down, and Van Veltoven just runs straight into my back when I was on the ground. So anyway, I, I'm laying there, and I can't get up, and I can't move, and I'm hearing gur gurgling out of my breath, you know, and I, you know, I'm thinking, man, eh, this is not that good. And um, so anyway, I couldn't move. So they come and put me on a stretcher, take me to the hospital, and and I'm there, and they're doing some x-rays and stuff, and I'm there for, you know, a couple hours. And slowly, things start coming back. Mm. My arms and my feet and my back, and I'm going, let me stand up. <laughs> Let's see if I can walk. So I got up and all that. I went back and watched the second moto, and Heike went and had champagne with him. And uh, it was a stinger, they called it. You know, you get hit in the spine, and it does something that it makes it all paralyzed, just like a real deal, but then it fixes itself. So it was not a broken spine or a broken, you know. Nerves. Or, yeah. 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 So it was just a scary thing for Lori. And, I know, bet it was. Obviously for me, too. But, uh, yeah, that was, I mean, it was no after things. So that was good, but it was, uh, you know, a little nerve-wracking. Sure. Okay, now, this is a question I've been waiting to ask you. I can't, uh -oh. tell, I can't tell you. I didn't do it. No, I know you didn't. Well, no, actually, I did do you it. did do it. Uh -huh. <laughs> Everybody out there who's watching, I'm sure you've seen the picture many times of Jimmy Weiner at the Oakland Coliseum. Oh, I did do it. <laughs> I think it's 1979. He's on a factory Kawasaki. He's got a neck brace on, and he's using this infamous paddle tire. It's a big deal. He's throwing sand every place it goes. Hannah's going blind. He can't see why it ruins the race. <laughs> Every time we see this picture on the internet, there are all these, oh, people think they have knowledge of what actually happened there. The paddle tire gave so much torque. Jimmy's neck was snapping back. Where did the paddle tire come from? Now, I know the answer to this. Do you want to start with that? Or do you want to start with the neck brace? Because that's before the paddle tire. All right, let's start with the neck brace. Why uh, did Jimmy have a neck brace on that day? We were screwing around in the rental car. Jimmy was driving, so no, I did not do that part. Okay. Jimmy was driving, and I had a ranch in Northern California with a motocross track, a big hill. So anyway, he's Jimmy's the wheel man. You know, he's pretty good at the wheel. So we're in the rental car, and he we come flying up. It's a dirt road, a mild dirt road up to where the ranch is, and it's a big hill. So Jimmy's going. How far do you think this thing will go up the hill? I go, I don't know, find out. So he goes up the hill as far as it goes until it's getting stuck. Then he turns around. Instead of just coming back down, he starts whipping it, you know, side to side and catches a cow trail or something. Seven snapper rolls. I mean, we had a record for beat Earnhardt for like 20 years. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. We had the record of snapper rolls. And uh, he was going 200 in Daytona, and we still got more. <laughs> anyway, so the roof is laying on the the headrest, Jimmy's head's hanging out that little area, whatever it is. Um, I was in the front seat with him. I'm in the back seat with my pants ripped off. And uh, we call, my dad's there and Lori's there. So they're calling the ambulance and they come and they get him and take Jimmy to the hospital. I think he's got a broken neck and he's probably dead. But he didn't have a broken neck, luckily. And he just had a bad, bad sprain. So they put him in a neck brace. And this was 
we were we came up for a press conference for, before for that race for the mm -hmm. Oakland Coliseum race. Anyway, I don't think we went because he was hurt, and I was kind of had some injuries too. Anyway, so I go look at the track with Jimmy because I didn't ride that time because I had a leg injury from that crash. And so I go, Jimmy, I got this tire. I think this tire would work here. Yeah, what is it? I go, it's a paddle tire. Nobody even heard about it over here. He never knew what it was. I didn't know what it was until three months earlier. Anyway, so I talk him into using it, which he can talk to Jammer into pretty much anything. So anyway, he puts it on, and then uh, history is like you said. He was killing Hannah, Hannah, screaming, crying, wanting a protest because he can't see, and the tire's so crazy. And they outlaw it after that night after he wins. But uh, he had a neck brace because he crashed the car and flipped seven times. And I gave him the tire that I got in Lot 2K, and he used it, and he won the race. And that's what really happened. That's what really happened. So the next time you see that picture of Jimmy Weiner in Oakland with the neck brace, remember, the Ford LTD, Brad Lackey doing the snap rolls. Brad, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us here today. It's been such an experience, your collection, your career. It's an honor to call you a friend. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. I hope uh, we straighten out a few rumors. Oh, I'm sure we will. That's it for this episode of Vintage Motocross Q&A. I'm Joe Abadi. Thank you. We'll see you next time. <laughs>